Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'll be your host for about the next hour. So today, we're going to be having a discussion uh, with my friend J.J. McCullough. Many of you uh, will recognize the name because he's been uh, writing on the Canadian political scene for quite a few years. He currently writes both for Looney Politics and recently uh, began a column in the Washington Post. One of his columns there got him officially condemned by the legislature of Quebec. So I've been wanting to have a discussion with him uh, for quite a while on the future of conservatism, because increasingly we seem to be having a lot of trouble in even defining what conservatism actually is these days. We have the Donald Trump crowd. Uh, we have the traditional conservative crowd. Of course, here in Canada, the shadow of Donald Trump is looming over the conservative party leadership race with, with much debate uh, being bandied about on which of the candidates deserves that label the most, if any at all. So uh, I had JJ on, and we had a conversation about the future of conservatism, and I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did. All right, JJ, well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So where did we first meet? I think it was the peak at Simon Fraser University, is that right? Yeah, I think so. That seems to be where a lot of my uh, meaningful relationships originated, at the at the student newspaper back in sort of, I guess, the late first decade of the of the 2000s yeah i remember uh reading your stuff because when i got on campus the very first week i was on campus there was an article in the peak called how to be a conservative at sfu uh and that article that article was uh was you had some great advice about how to deal with my professors and stuff like that and then uh <laughs> i guess it kind of went from uh from there and then what are you up to now sort of uh, tell our listeners a bit about what you're all about most people have seen your cartoons which you don't do as much of uh, these days, but I've I've certainly kept track of them, and now you write for the Washington Post. Yeah, so I mean, I suppose ever since I left uh, the university newspaper, I've just sort of bounced from one uh, journalism job to another. I worked as a columnist for the Huffington Post Canada for a brief period of time. I was a political commentator on Sun News back when that was a thing. I worked for CTV as a commentator for a while. Uh, most recently, I was a columnist at, at Looney Politics, which was a sort of startup political commentary website that's still earned. And uh, yeah, and then I also did some cartoons here and there as well, editorial cartoons. Although, uh, as much as there is sort of a niche audience for that sort of thing, it's it's not nearly as popular or profitable as far as art forms go. So I've, I've really sort of descended much more into written and, uh, and audio and, and television commentary. Well, and it's interesting because I've noted the the evolution in your writing as you discuss different topics, and of course, we're living in a in a very rigidly ideological age. And you've written a lot about how you know you came of age as a conservative, defending the Iraq War, defending George W. Bush, and you've been forced to question a lot of those things. And now we've arrived at this moment, which everybody is trying to figure out. And you know, there's a there's a lot of work for a columnist at the moment, which is. A lot of what you're doing at Washington Post trying to figure this out, and I know you've been on a bunch of other uh, radio shows and podcasts and things like this discussing it. So how would you describe your, your, your evolution as a conservative over, say, the last 10 years while you were writing and drawing? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good question. I mean, it is true that certainly when I was sort of first becoming politically aware, and actually when I first started writing political commentary, it was actually at a previous university where I went, at Douglas College, which was, I also worked for their student newspaper back in the day. And this was about the time that the Iraq War was really sort of, the debate of the Iraq War was really sort of heating up. And, you know, I had been very affected by, by 9-11, which had happened in the last year of, of high school for me. And I felt very strongly that, you know, America should respond and that America should, you know, sort of take the war to its enemies overseas. And I was a big supporter of, of George W. Bush. I thought he was a great leader. I thought that he understood the threat that America faced. And so, yeah, certainly my first uh, sort of wave of commentary, my first sort of wave of writing, and, and even in my cartoons, I would say that I, I was probably what would now be described as, as a neocon. Right. You know, right. I, was, I was very much a big believer in the idea that America could use force to, you know, fundamentally sort out the world in, in, in a very dramatic sort of way, which was that, you know, it wasn't just about the use of force, it was also about the, that, that sort of American power could kind of reconstitute the world, that the Middle East needed to be democratized. 
America could democratize the Middle East in the same way that America democratized Japan and Germany. And, you know, I mean, I, I was a very big believer in that. I, I had a very earnest faith in, in sort of the fundamental goodness of America, which I do still believe in. But, you know, that war obviously didn't go well, and I, I was fairly disillusioned by that whole process. And I think that that led me into a phase of, of somewhat... Uh, introspective uh, conservatism. I think I was actually, frankly, a, a fair bit more moderate for a period in sort of the the mid-2000s uh, than I think I perhaps am today, in which I was a lot more introspective. I felt like that there was, you know, that the, that the right was kind of getting a little bit broken in, in some ways and that they ran, you know, a couple of, of quite bad candidates. You know, I was quite critical of, of John McCain and, and quite critical of Mitt Romney as mm-hmm. well. I was always, though, I, I should say as well, that I was always very supportive of of Stephen Harper in this country. And I think that one of the things that I've, I've sort of come to realize as I, as I get older and as I, I sort of try to find a niche for myself is that on some level, I, I'm just kind of retreating more and more into doing Canadian issues and just trying to get a handle on, on sort of Canadian domestic politics. Because on some level, I, I guess that's just like, it's, it's a smaller realm, but it's also a realm that you can feel and speak a, a bit more confidently with. Right. You know, the ideological stakes are perhaps a little bit less high in Canada. Whereas when you're talking about American politics, which I think is the temptation that we all want to do, the ideological stakes are a lot higher. I mean, America does sort of uh, direct the evolution of, I think, Western thought and certainly Western political philosophy in a lot of ways. And and at a time when that's sort of becoming a lot, uh, you know, very uncertain, very intimidating, I think that the temptation to just kind of like retreat into into Canada is, is quite strong. Yeah, now just to double back for a moment, because I'm curious as to what you think of this. Both you and I were big supporters of George W. Bush, and I, I always felt he was a, a fundamentally good and decent and dignified person. And I just noticed it's trending on Facebook, George W. Bush, because of a few comments he made about civility and decency. And and all these these journalists are shocked that George W. Bush is the voice of reason, uh, mainly because he can now be used to, to bludgeon the, the, the uh, politicians that they don't like. But do you ever feel like George W. Bush was still just a fundamentally decent and dignified guy who did his very, very best, you know, the Iraq War uh, aside in terms of, you know, that I think the historians are going to be debating who screwed that war up for, for generations longer than you and I will be around. But I, I still feel, uh, when I think back on that period and, and the conversations that myself and, you know, the politicos, you know, back at the peak were having, I still feel as if he was very unjustly uh, mischaracterized. And, and that, I, I will say, still bothers me. Every time he, an interview with him comes up, I, I do feel, I do feel a, a lot of fondness for him because I feel like he was one of, both of the Bushes really were just good men who wanted to dedicate themselves uh, to civil service in their country. And, and I feel like a lot of that's been lost. Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're you're very much right about that, and I think actually the affection that I think conservatives of our generation feel for George W. Bush is is you know similar to I think you see how the political class now in America is very much dominated by people of of sort of the Gen X generation, right? And the way that they speak about Ronald Reagan because Ronald Reagan was sort of like you know the the sort of paternalistic uh, president figure of their youth and of their sort of awakening as as conservatives and. And the rest of it. No, I, I, I do think that he was he was unfairly maligned, and I, I do think that the, that the degree to which he was maligned sort of helped orient me as a conservative as well, because the the the, the sort of vitriol they used against him, you know, that this was like a, a, a fascist man, like a wicked man, a man who right. like loved death and loved you know, hated Muslims and hated, like, all of these kind of tropes, you know, Christian fundamentalists, you know, like, wanted all gays to die, all of these kinds of things. Like, the thing is that you realize that this is just part of a script. And I think that the fact that it's been used against George W. Bush, it's been used against, you know, Stephen Harper, it's been used against Mitt Romney, it's been used against everybody. You, you, uh, I suppose in some respects, I, I realize in retrospect that a lot of it was a bigger than George W. Bush. Like a lot of this, and I think that as you get older, you come to realize mm-hmm. that how much of politics is just sort of this, this sort of scripted game that you just keep, that both sides just sort of keep reacting the same roles over and over and over again. And it, in some respects, it doesn't even really matter who the, 
who the figurehead of the day is. Yeah, and that gets boring. I remember Bill Maher said a little while ago that he gave a million dollars to Obama, but now he'd give a million dollars for Mitt Romney to be the president because he's realizing that these sort of hysterical slurs every time a Republican or a conservative pokes his or her head above the parapet uh, has sort of vaccinated the population against people who genuinely do stoop to that sort of rhetoric and, and do use that rhetoric in order to corral perhaps uh, you know more undesirable segments of the voting population and, and things yeah. like that. I think the, the thing that frustrated me the most about this rediscovery of the fundamental decency of, of you know the two Bushes and Mitt Romney and stuff like that is I think they just realized they cried wolf so long that when you know Donald Trump went after a Hispanic judge, suddenly they're like, well, that, that is the real thing. And everybody's like, yeah, whatever, heard that before. <laughs> no, it's, it's true, but it's, it's still worrying to this day. And, you know, some people have, have, written, have written good things about this as well, because, you know, Donald Trump is, is a flawed man in, in so many ways, politically as, as well as, you know, just on an individual level. But at the same time, uh, even now, like the rhetoric is still completely overheated, right? Like, if if you imagine someday if there was, say, a Republican president who said who went around and saying things like, "I want America just for white people," uh, you know, non-white people have no role in my country. Like, we need to create a country, you know, that's pure and ethnically, you know, uh, you know, saintly, and all the rest of this kind of stuff. Like, what kind of rhetoric would be left to use to describe <laughs> such a politician? There would be nothing, right? Like, at this point, literally every argument has been made. Like, literally, if you listen to the rhetoric of the left, you know, the White House is under the occupation of, of white nationalists, of like literal fascists, and they'll, they'll even put the literal in there, you know, neo-Nazis, like there's nowhere else to go from here. And I think that that is, that is troubling because we have to retain a robust political vocabulary, you know, as the, as the kids say, you know, words have to mean something. Yeah. And it is, it is very troubling if, if we've gotten to a point where like the Republican politicians of the day is being used with the exact same sort of descriptive adjectives as you would need to retain to describe the unique horror and evil of, say, someone like Adolf Hitler or, or Mussolini or whoever. Like, these are distinct characters. It's, it's not, I suppose it's, it's sort of, it always reminds me of uh, Orwell had a line where he said that even in his time, you know, fascism had descended into a word that had no definition beyond that which I do not care for. Yeah, no, it's interesting. We, we've talked about this quite a bit uh, during the rise of Trump, but one of the things that I have found fundamentally disturbing about the reactions on both sides is the, the messianic uh, vision that some people have of Donald Trump, which bewilders me. And then on the other side, what you just referred to, this, this utter demonization. And, and he's really just a flawed politician that has to be held to account for each individual decision that he makes. It's sort of, you know, the argument like, you know, he's bumbling, he's stupid, and he doesn't know what he's doing, and then he's simultaneously a nefarious man of unparalleled evil. Um, and sometimes I wonder if anybody's considered the fact that maybe there's no plan. Uh, maybe he, he doesn't have a plan to make America great again. He was unprepared for the bureaucracy he's dealing with, and that's why it's taking him longer to accomplish his legislative goals, because, you know, he isn't a politician and has to learn the ropes, and, you know, it's, his administration is plagued with leaks. And then on the flip side, you know, every single misstep he makes or every single thing he says is immediately characterized as part of his nefarious plan, either to, you know, distract people from what's really going on, goes the one theory, or two, is, is part of, uh, of the plan. So I, and I, I look at the Trump administration and, and I see you know, a bunch of inexperienced people, most of whom haven't really held significant power like that, trying to figure it out, screwing up sometimes, getting some things right. And if we can't evaluate him as a human being, and if we can't evaluate him as a politician, which uh, both of us did quite a bit of writing on throughout the election. I just don't know where where to go with it. Like, wh how do you actually uh, talk about the Trump administration if you've made all of the ways that we talk about politicians inaccessible? You know, um, I, you put it really well in one of your articles that you know supporting Trump or not supporting Trump is no longer a political question. It's the measure of how good of a person you are. Uh, yeah. And even taking nuance, you know, if you're nuanced about Trump and saying, well, I hated this, and I really liked that, uh, now you're immediately evil because you didn't, you didn't notice the fact that he has horns growing out of that, that whatever has gone his head. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's very true. And I think that this is, though, a, a product of a sort of larger 
trend, in, which is the sort of the fusion of the political and the personal, right? Which has been, you know, obviously happening for, for quite some time, and this is bound up in, in various sort of identity politics, currents, and all the rest of it. But we are really getting into an unambiguous place now, whereas that if you, it's not even if you, not even if you are a conservative, but if you just are insufficiently, uh, you know, full of hate for the, cons- the, the current conservative figurehead, whoever that may be, then you are absolutely like a bad person, like that you are a wicked person and, you know, that your opinion should be discounted on that basis. And I, that's something that really troubles me a lot because, you know, as much as I'm a political commentator, as much as I've made my life, you know, expressing political opinions, I would like to think that I can turn it off at some point, you know, right. that I can put the, I can put the commentary aside. I can stop being, you know, JJ political commentator and I can just start being JJ the man and, you know, have my friends and, you know, live a normal human life. But I think that that is becoming much more difficult at a time when people are consuming so much uh, very sensationalistic, clickbaity, you know, headlines, which are, you know, a product of the technological change of our time that encourage people to just really feel that the stakes are incredibly high and that if they're not actively engaged in resisting, you know, a, a, a government in this case that is being portrayed as, yeah, like the, the Hitler of our time, then then that makes them like a, a, a deficient person. That makes them like a, a cowardly person. And as a result, that makes anybody who seems to be expressing any nuance to be basically like a, a, a quizzling, a traitor, right? It's, it's just a very narrow dichotomy where it's either you're, it's actually, I suppose, like what George W. Bush once said in relation to Islamic uh, terrorism, right? You're either with us or you're with yeah. the enemy. And I reserve the right but to think I, I somebody's just, an idiot without being evil. Yeah, or, or just that, you know, maybe, yeah, you're misguided, right? Like, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to say that. Like, I've, I, I have no problem with expressing nuanced opinions on, on the Trump administration, for instance, what it is or isn't doing, and, and trying to ex- expose these kinds of things in a rationalistic and, uh, you know, fact-based sort of way. And I'm, I'm perfectly willing to say that maybe sometimes when I do this, I'm wrong. Maybe sometimes I'm drawing incorrect conclusions. Right. But what I'm not really interested in is being told that, like, I'm a wicked person, I'm a bad person, you know, having people decide that they don't want to be my friend anymore on the basis of, expressing any degree of nuance which has happened to me and then it's and it's, it's troubling yeah that 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 trend has carried on there's been a number of articles coming out about people losing friends now uh because of what's going on i remember the the host of the canada land podcast uh, had i kind of asked you you know jj you're a great guy you've got a lot of good things to say but isn't there some part of you that you know deep down late at night when you're alone with your thoughts you know that, that tells you that you're 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 one of the bad guys and you're rooting for the wrong yeah. team, right? Those those sorts of, uh, of questions. And I was wondering the other day, trying to piece this through and looking at the hysteria on on my Facebook newsfeed because I subscribe to all the left wing news sites as well. Is it perhaps part of this is most of the people our age, uh, or and especially younger, the people that are fueling the so called resistance, have never experienced anything like this before. They've never experienced a political loss. They've had Barack Obama for eight years, they were convinced that Hillary would be next, and they just never experienced anybody disagreeing with them on any major issue. So the issue, of course, that I'm most passionate about, you know, being the pro-life one, they never experienced somebody in power saying, hey, we, uh, we're, we're not, we just disagree with you on that. And maybe that's where this hysteria is coming from, the realization that uh, you actually have to make an argument as opposed to just assume that those in power are going to carry out the agenda that you inherited from your, your professors. Yeah, and I, I do think that there's also been a sort of troubling rise of rhetoric on the left. I mean, President Obama said this all the time, right? The idea that there's kind of like this arc of history, or that history is a kind of linear thing in which it's always sort of hurtling towards the progressive utopia, right? And I think that a lot of people did believe that very strongly, and I think that there was a strong aspect of 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 that bound up in the kind of the inevitability of Hillary Clinton, right? Which kind of feeds into this idea. And there was a lot of rhetoric of this sort on the left, right? That like, okay, once we get Hillary in, then we've really crossed a point of no return. Like there will be no more Republicans. They'll never be able to be elected. The party is like broken. It's on, you know, the, the, the bad side of demogra- demographic destiny and yada, yada, yada. Like the idea that, that that is sort of how history is supposed to work. And the idea that there can be a pushback against that or that maybe, you know, maybe these kinds of things are just how politics will always work. Like maybe there's just going to be, you know, one side wins and the other side wins. A back right. and forth, flip-flop, 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 right? And I think that that's been like kind of what we were just getting at a bit earlier is that one of the great virtues of, of getting older is that you do start to realize that, 
you know, you do not necessarily live in the most fascinating time that has ever existed. <laughs> Sometimes you live in a particularly boring time. And I think that I'm starting to just conceptualize, you know, Donald Trump's presidency. I mean, it's, it's, it's in many ways an unusual presidency, but perhaps in the grand scheme of things, it won't be regarded as that, you know, 30, 40, 50 years from now. It'll probably be just regarded as, oh, yeah, and then a Republican was president. You know, in the same way, when we look back at our charts of presidents, we see that, you know, there was Republicans, Democrats, you know, back and forth, back and forth. So it's, it's getting beyond that kind of myopia, which I do think is a, is a, very, a very young person's sort of attitude. And, and yeah, I, I do think that the political commentary has become a lot more dominated by young voices who, as you said, perhaps don't have that kind of context. Yeah, and I agree with you. And, and we, we, should, we, should want, we should want to live in boring times, right? The, the, the level of, of desire almost to, to see exactly what you're saying, this, this great significance in everything that's going on, which, of course, makes your next tweet or participation in some march all the more significant because history is going to remember you as one of the last holdouts against the impending apocalypse. <laughs> Right, but like, yeah. doesn't everybody want to live in boring times and you know go to work and do their job and and you know raise their families and hang out with their friends? That seems to me to be the desirable uh, option for civilization. Yeah, you'd, you'd think that, but I mean, you know, we we've lived in such a politicized time, and I mean, I I uh, perhaps sort of lack the sociological skills to understand why that is. I mean, I, I'm sure that some of it is is just technological, right? right. I mean, it is much more easy to consume a, a large diet of the news than it ever used to be, right? I mean, the newspaper used to be something that you would, you know, check in at maybe first thing in the morning, and then you'd go home and watch the six o'clock news at night. But it wasn't like constantly blasting in your ear, constantly on this little computer that you brought with you everywhere, you know, constantly, you know, in the corner of your eye at, at, at work all day long. So we do live in a, in a uniquely sort of politicized era, which I think is sort of exasperated a lot of uh, sort of the worst tendencies that I think a lot of us perhaps were prone to anyway, because politics is interesting. And I've, I've heard people, you know, who posit theories about that in a peaceful time, politics becomes a sort of proxy for, for war, for conflict that we all desire. It all clearly becomes a proxy for religion in some people's lives. Right. It's, and becomes a proxy for entertainment. I mean, it, it, it's this huge thing that can fill so many holes. But that comes at a tremendous social cost, and I think we're starting to realize it. The, the question is just how, if it's at all possible in the technological and cultural moment that we live in, if it's at all possible to regress back to something a little bit simpler, a little bit more boring, a little bit more quiet. Which brings us to Canada. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice transition. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I got a call from a Quebecois uh, journalist writing for uh, for a column in, in some magazine. I don't speak French, so I didn't understand the title. But um, <laughs> they they were asking me, um, you know, as 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 somebody who who is a passionate social conservative and social conservative writer, are you hoping for a Trump effect here in Canada? Now, of course, I had to answer that question very carefully because I don't want somebody of of the the same moral character as Donald Trump. I have plenty of issues with him. There's plenty of things about the circus across the border that I have no desire to see unfold here. On the other hand, do I hope, uh, you know, that political correctness takes a hit here? Uh, Do I hope that uh, we actually have a shot at passing more conservative policies? Uh, Of course I do. And now Donald Trump seems to be the lens through which people are analyzing, especially the current uh, race for the conservative party leadership, right? The parallels are constantly being drawn to Kevin O'Leary because he's been on uh, on reality TV shows like Shark Tank and Dragon's Den. They're trying to compare him to to Kelly Leach as well, although I don't see it. But this speaks to your point that Canadian politics is a lot more boring because when you boil Kevin O'Leary down, he's just another one of these you know greedy businessmen who wants to restructure everything and everybody will pay less taxes, and he really doesn't care about anything beyond money. And I might agree with some of his tax stuff. But as a social conservative, his complete disinterest in, in, you know, the moral fabric of society obviously disturbs me. But as for Kelly Leach, I disagree with plenty of her policies as well, but I, I just don't see her as the sort of scary person that even McLean's made her out to be uh, a little while ago. What's, what's your take on all that? Well, yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that I think what's unique about Canada is that because the stakes are so much lower and because our political system, I believe, is is fundamentally quite a bit less democratic, is that you do get a much more 
of a phenomenon of, of, of politicians that are sort of trying to lead the parade from behind. So, and it, they're often kind of like, you know, they're, they're not innovative people. They're not really bold thinkers. They're not transformative figures. They're not really trying to chart a new course. They're often people that like are very thoroughly percolated in the politics of, you know, the previous decade that are trying to sort of madly scramble to get a sense of, of where the mood of the present is. Right. So the interesting thing about the conservative leadership race is that you basically have all of these people, you know, 14, 15, whatever, the vast majority of whom are former cabinet ministers, uh, former cabinet ministers from the Stephen Harper administration, who basically had their entire political consciousness formed as cabinet ministers in the Stephen Harper administration. So that these are people that have never really been very political for much of their lives. A lot of them are are quite young, such as Andrew Scheer. And basically all they've ever known is like conservatism as Stephen Harper defines it. And, you know, some of them, such as Andrew Scheer, are hewing very rigidly to that script, adding, contributing nothing. But then you do have people like Kelly Leach, who, you know, she, or at least some of the people like within her orbit, kind of have a vague sense that the, the mood is a little bit more populist, that issues like immigration are starting to get a little bit hotter, that the consensus is maybe not as settled as it has uh, often been told by the press. And so you get these people that are kind of attempting in this very awkward and, and in some ways very Canadian way to kind of uh, try to offer something close. But it, it's, it's all quite ridiculous. And whenever I talk to conservatives, people are, are just quite disappointed with the with the options on the table because they sense accurately that these people are not that they're not leaders in in the sense that the country needs and and even someone like kevin o'leary who as much as he has a lot of flash and pizzazz and stuff he's clearly like (laughs) i mean he makes uh donald trump look like uh, you know plato or something in in his lack of of engagement with even a few big ideas like as much as as Donald Trump is, uh, you know, a political neophyte, you at least had the sense that there was like maybe like you know three or four issues that he cared a lot about. Kevin O'Leary, beyond the idea that like you know put me in charge and everything will be better, I mean he's kind of a caricature of a caricature, which I don't know what that says. Yeah, no, and with, with the conservative leadership race as well, one of the thing that's one of the things that's consistently irritated me about conservative candidates in general. So let's take. Uh, Ontario's own Patrick Brown, who's well, nobody knows what he believes because he's a weasel. Um, <laughs> yes. But, so he sides with with anything that he thinks might get him a few votes. N- nobody believes anything that comes out of his mouth. Essentially, he just isn't Kathleen Wynne. Uh, but mm-hmm. a lot of people are trying to go for what I call consensus conservatism, which fundamentally isn't. Uh, I wonder though if if the candidates who are trying to come up with a few more new ideas, like Kelly Leach and her immigration screening are maybe barking up the wrong tree, because from what I see happening, uh, so in Alberta and in Ontario primarily, you have very, very left-wing provincial governments that are using the threat of climate change to vastly increase their coffers. None of that money gets used to pay down the debt. It just drives the costs up for everybody, and then they throw that money away as well. Uh, So... When people ask us if we're in our Trump moment, and if a Trump moment means a populist backlash against against the government, well, you know, I live in I live in Brantford, Ontario. People in Ottawa have never heard of my city, so I'm I'm, I'm paying taxes uh, to a provincial and a federal government that that have no idea what the needs and concerns of our cities are. And I think a lot of people are getting fed up with the fact that their taxes keep going up, and that money just seems to vanish. And when Justin Trudeau uh, you know, approaches a woman who's is sobbing at one of his town hall meetings and saying, look, like, I can barely afford to keep my lights on because of my hydro bill. And it's, it's very clever what Trudeau does. He, he does the Bill Clinton thing. He immediately turns it into an emotional uh, moment. He turns it into a personal moment, like, I feel for you, but here's why, I'm sorry, you're going to have to sacrifice because I'm tilting at windmills here. We have to end climate change. And, of course, the, the left needs to have some sort of battle to fight, so climate change is their thing. And all of the common people who are just trying to you know, pay their bills, raise their families, keep their lights on, are going to have to suffer, while people who are not at all impacted by this are going to keep on, on spending their money on policies that, from an objective scientific standpoint even, are not even going to make a dent. Let's say, let's say uh, you know, that every bit of evidence, the most alarmist, the most extreme evidence on climate change is, is 100% true. Even then, Canada is not going to make a dent in it. So this, this lady is, quite frankly, suffering in, in financial hardship for no good reason other than that politicians want to use her money to make themselves feel good. 
Yeah, I mean, I find it. I, you're you're exactly right, and I I do find it endlessly fascinating because the whole conversation about climate change has again become just completely this kind of up or down moral test, right? It's like you either are a good person and you care about climate change, you believe climate change, you know, you're not a climate change denier, which is, you know, up with like Holocaust denial, right. the new, uh, like sin of our time, you know, but it's like, but as a result, because it's been framed in this very sort of like moralistic way, it is very easy for politicians to get away with just about anything as long as they can wrap it in. And absolutely, and even to ask to, for it to pass some sort of utilitarian test is unto itself seen as being, you know, well, at that point, you're part of the problem, right? At that point, you're, you know, you're playing footsie with the deniers and all the rest of it. It, it, is, it is quite, it's, it's, it's really quite abhorrent, I find. And it's really one of the most destructive conversations, I think, that exists in, in our political discourse today. But at the same time, I have to give the left some credit, because at least it is something that they feel very passionately about. Like, right. at least climate change is a big cause that they are willing you know, clearly to exert a lot of effort into into chasing a very robust policy agenda in the name of. And there's nothing remotely like that on the right. Like, I don't know what the right's climate change, you know, so-called, you know, cause of that sort is. Like, and, and I think that that's something that really irritates a lot of grassroots people on the right in this country, is that they see a left that is very passionate, that is very purposeful, that has a clear agenda, that knows what it wants, knows what it doesn't want. And in meanwhile, they see a... a uh, a uh, right, a conservative party that can barely even articulate opposition to what the left is offering. And I mean, you're seeing that right now with, with Patrick Brown and with Michael Chong and with some of these other, you know, premier palaces. Like, they, they, they honestly don't know what they are. They don't know what they stand for. They're petrified of being disliked. They're petrified of being, you know, on the receiving end of, of negative criticism from the press. So they become these, like, quite pathetic people. And I honestly think, you know, the last time that we were in a situation like this in Canada, what we got was we got the Reform Party because we got a populist movement that became so thoroughly disillusioned with what the establishment conservatives were offering and a, a correct analysis of, of you know what people like Kim Campbell say represented that they formed a new party, a party that was actively controlled by the people who felt that they were being left out of this conversation. And that included a lot of ideological conservatives who felt that the conservative party had lost its way. And I do think that, you know, if, if that history is going to repeat itself, where now is as good a time as any. Yeah, I agree with you on that simply because it's always frustrated me that the left, as much as I disagree with, with virtually everything that they stand for, they do generally speaking, have the guts to, to go after what they believe. I, I've said this, before that I think Kathleen Wynne, as much as I dislike all of her policies, is a fundamentally more honest and ideological politician than Patrick Brown is. When Kathleen Wynne opens her mouth and tells me what she's planning to do, I believe every word of it. When Patrick Brown does, I'm like, yeah, well, that depends on what the polls look like tomorrow morning. Um, mm -hmm. And like in regard to their passion for climate change, I, I suppose the reason I said that a, a Trump moment could be coming is that the left is very passionate about fighting for their cause using other people's money. They never have to sacrifice for it. You know, they simply pump more more taxes into their coffers to play around with the social programs that don't go anywhere and to, to create climate change strategies that never go anywhere. So as a result, that money, that tax money doesn't even used uh, isn't even used to better the lives of everyone else, but I think there's a, there's a real malaise right now among Canadian conservatives that I'm very aware of because I operate in social conservative circles that a lot of people thought that what Stephen Harper was going to do was going to last a lot longer. So my favorite thing about Harper was his very principled uh, foreign policy, especially in relation to countries like Israel. But if you look at, if you look at for example, assisted suicide uh, becoming legal, that was, a court for, that was a court decision from the bench. There were no dissenters, and almost the entire court were Harper appointees. You know, the first time uh, Justin Trudeau has the opportunity to appoint a Supreme Court justice, that guy got vetted for every single left-wing issue you could possibly think of, because the left ensures that when they have a chance to reshape the bureaucracy, reshape the courts, they pick people who believe exactly what they believe, so that their, their agenda will be furthered in, in multiple arenas, whereas conservatives just don't seem to pay a lot of attention to that. Now, I believe Stephen Harper uh, was a conservative, and I think that he was trying to do 
his very best. Obviously, as a, as a social conservative, I'm always going to be pretty bitter about the makeup of the current Supreme Court because I think assisted suicide uh, is a is a uh, an issue that people are going to start to look more and more at as they realize where this is headed, which you can figure out just by looking at Holland and Belgium. But there's a lot of people who are looking for somebody who actually has the guts to say something that will irritate other people or even even attract backlash. So that's why Kelly Leach you know, is, is gaining a bit of traction. Uh, I think Kevin O'Leary's traction purely comes from the fact that, that he says things in an in, in, inelegant fashion. Um, but even Maxime Bermier, I, he's not my pick. Uh, he's not my favorite guy. But he's trying to articulate ideas. He's trying to articulate an ideology. And he's willing to defend them, whereas... The rest of them, I didn't even know half of these guys existed until they started emailing <laughs> me every 15 minutes. Um, and I just feel like their plan is all to be as vanilla as possible, come up the middle, and hope that the, 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 at the end of the day they accumulate just enough votes to squeak out and become leader. <laughs> well, the, the interesting thing, you know, when I, when I think about Stephen Harper, certainly in retrospect, I come to regard sort of that the kind of the last, 30 years of Canadian conservatism was really much more just the story of one man, which was Stephen Harper's sort of long rise to power. And, you know, Stephen Harper was a a very principled conservative in a lot of ways, but he was also an an idiosyncratic character. I mean, he had his calculations that he made from a political level, one of which was an enormous distrust of of social conservatives, which I guess was forged in whatever, you know, context, pres- uh, you know, produced him. Right. And that's, and that's fine. But I think that what we've realized is that, you know, people, I think, have underestimated just to what degree he was the dominant figure who just consumed everything. Like, that he was, he sucked all the oxygen out of the, uh, out of the movement, out of the ideological uh, space of conservatism in this country. And that, as a result, the moment that he sort of wandered off, we're kind of flailing about, and that there. You know, I think that this was a problem, and I think that actually Stephen Harper himself would probably admit it, was that he, that there was sort of too much uh, leadership concentrated in his person, and that there were not enough sort of independent uh, other sort of poles of conservative thought emerging anywhere else in the country. And so I think that that's kind of what you see today, right, which is that without Stephen Harper sitting literally in the big chair telling people what to do and what to think and what to, you know, believe, you got a lot of people that are, are suddenly, uh, you know, really driftless. And, and so as a result, they're taking direction without, you know, daddy to tell them what they believe. They're looking to the press. They're looking to, you know, liberal politicians. They're looking to other poles of authority, which, of course, are all captured by the left. Uh, I think that what you said about Maxime Bernier is, is probably true. I mean, I'm not a big fan of his either. Uh, but I, you, you can say that at least he seems to have a, a philosophy. At least he seems to have a value system. Personally, I, I kind of feel that the priorities of that particular value system of this kind of libertarianism with a very sort of limited Canadian sort of policy scope is not the most relevant to the age that we're living in. Right. You know, a friend of mine has this term and phrase where he talks about sort of the economy cult, which is a sort of like line of argument that you hear certain people sort of recite endlessly in Canada. You know, the, the idea that sort of like the most pressing issues facing the country today are like, you know, getting a better equalization system for the provinces or, you know, ending supply management. Like, I mean, it's all well and good to have a worldview that's based around addressing those issues, which I suppose are, you know, I agree with him. But it's like, are, are those the issues that are really the defining ones of our time? Like, are those the issues that when you look at sort of why people are feeling alienated or upset with with Justin Trudeau or with politics or with the culture or with the state of Canada in general, are these really the ones at the top of the list or are these merely ones that you've found easy answers to, you know, 20 years ago and, and you just kind of want to keep repeating them? So I don't know. I, I honestly think that this is, this is not a great time for the party, but I also think that uh, sometimes you really have to hit a, a really low point before... Uh, something greater can rise from the ashes. And I think that that's what we've seen in, in the history of conservative parties in this country in the past. That is true. You said earlier that we know what the left is passionate about, but conservatives don't seem to have something. I think from what we can see unfolding right now, most of them are simply passionate about power, which is why a great many of them are willing to say virtually anything it takes to get them there. You know, a.k.a. Patrick Brown and a lot of the leadership candidates who don't seem to have an ideology, but if this is a dark time for the party, 
what would be your ideal moving forward, right? So I have policies that I'm passionate about, and I'm going to be voting for the Conservative Party leader, and I'm going to be you know, ranking people I think have the best chance of bringing some of those values to the House of Commons. But do you see any figure on the horizon that might be somebody who's capable of uniting fractured Canadian conservatism? Uh, do you, and, and, and secondarily to that, right, because the Canadian media landscape isn't like the American Canadian media landscape, but you can see sort of the polarization starting to happen to a certain degree, that some people are, are convinced that, again, Justin Trudeau is this, this crazy, nefarious, evil person, and that, you know, he's, he wants to open the floodgates and let millions and millions of Syrians in and things like that. So these things, these things are underway right now. And I know it's hard to make predictions, but why don't you give it a shot? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I do think that sort of the next great wave of conservative politicians will not come from existing sort of political structures. I think that there'll be both people from the outside. Maybe it'll come from journalists. I mean, that's been a, a sort of underreported phenomenon of, of sort of the Trump uh, administration was how a lot of these characters that are sort of in his inner circle, like, you know, say Stephen Bannon, have a background in, in journalism rather than, than politics or, or consulting or, you know, uh, that sort of world. Um, just because, like, I don't know, like when I look at you know, I'm pretty active on Twitter, and I get a lot of support and and stuff from sort of what I would consider the base or like rank and file conservatives. Mm-hmm. And you look at what they're talking about, and they're talking about you know issues such as you know immigration and and diversity. The increasing diversification of Canadian society is clearly not coming at no cost, like Justin Trudeau likes to say. You know, it, it is causing social tensions. It is causing inequality of various sorts. It has an economic component, but also a very big cultural component. And then when you factor in uh, sort of the rise of, of Islam, you know, that this is becoming a much more, you know, it's it, there's over a million Muslims in this country now. It's it's a substantial minority population increasing at a substantial rate at a time when we've seen what happens to other Western countries that have a large and, and mostly unassimilated uh, Muslim population, that that doesn't come without a cost. I think that there is also just kind of concern over sort of rising inequality in general, you know, a, a sense, and this is sort of classic populism, a, a sense that there is an elite that has an understanding of what the country is and how the country should be and want to sort of govern in a somewhat sort of imperious kind of way and are, are not particularly interested in in uh, in listening to voices that contradict their their very sort of rather narrow uh, liberal, you know, progressive ideal. And so I do think that if a conservative politician is going to come up and be genuinely successful, I think that he or she has to be able to speak to some of these issues with some degree of uh, of genuineness, you know, they have to seem like that they honestly care about these issues, that they've thought about them, that they're not just trying to, you know, repackage them into this little palatable way that they can give, you know, dole out in little chunks, but that they actually realize, you know, the cons- the causes of the base and the concerns of the base, and that they uh, that they that they feel as passionately as they as as the base does. And I mean, I think that that's one of the few assets of of Kevin O'Leary, even though he doesn't think seriously about any of these issues that I've talked about, you get the sense when you see him that he is actually angry at something. He plays angry <laughs> well. He seems genuinely <laughs> upset at the state of the country. He seems particularly lived at Justin Trudeau, at Kathleen Wynne, at Premier Notley. And that, and I think that, like, that that is something that needs to be taken seriously, is, is to the extent that what people are, are looking for, and I think this was the same with Donald Trump as well, is just that kind of sense of authenticity. The sense that, like, I am angry, I am animated, I am energized, and I want to I fight for what I perceive to be right, because what I'm hearing right now from the existing political leadership, from the existing sort of poles of authority in our society, are not right. That they're speaking falsehoods, they're speaking, you know, uh, fantasy, and it's time for a recalibration. But I, I honestly, like, I don't see any rising political stars and, that are articulating these kind of ideas, and that makes me think that it's, it's that if, hopefully speaking, that there is some sort of conservative renaissance or a new party or a new populist uprising, it will probably not come from existing uh, the existing political establishment, even and, on the fringes of it. And that's my, my big concern, to be completely honest, because the economic anxiety that a lot of people are feeling, they need somebody to be angry on their behalf. Especially, like I mentioned earlier, Ontario, Alberta, almost every province in the country now, with the exception of Saskatchewan, is being run by a left-winger that is engaging mm-hmm. in social experimentation, uh, taxation, they're raising the minimum wage, which is 
simply going to result in most of most of the cheap labor jobs uh, going automated anyways, which a lot of the restaurants that you know people work part time at are testing out. And I think that where the the populist uprising in Canada would come from is simply by the fact that the so-called elites, I hate the word, but let's use it for the for the sake of the discussion, that the anger is going to come from the fact that they are constantly feeling the financial pitch and that the utopia the left is promising isn't materializing for anybody but for a select few. Very ironically, actually, since the left likes to say, you know, conservatives don't care about economic equality, and we do, but a lot of their pet projects create the economic inequality. And I see this, you know, about like five or six years out. I could be wrong. It could be earlier. It could be a bit later. But at some point, we're going to reach the tipping point where people have just had enough, where they can't handle $300 hydro bills, or where they just they they can't afford the things that they need to live like they used to. And I, myself, as a conservative, really want a principled conservative with a conservative ideology to be prepared to take advantage of that backlash against the politicians who, who are testing out uh, their utopian theories. And I fear exactly what you said. The only the angriest guy left is going to be the one one everybody votes for because they're like, you know what? I'm I'm angry. I'm pissed off. And so is Kevin O'Leary. So I'm going to vote for that guy when you know we should be fielding somebody that actually has has a lot more to say than he does. Yeah. No, I I, I agree completely. And again, you know, not to bring everything back to Trump, but I think that that's. Uh, that's obviously part of the phenomenon that produced him. And I, I think that, you know, it's interesting because Trump has sort of been at the center of what I've described as a kind of cargo cult. I mean, when you look at some of the people on on sort of the fringe right, certainly like even a lot of sort of like, you know, these young people, you know, the so-called alt-right sort of folks on, on forums and whatnot. Right. Like a lot of them are fantasizing things about Donald Trump that he's never actually articulated. Right. He he's being, you know, treated as a sort of messiah figure. And and that even when he engages in sort of incompetence, well, there's clearly like some big like you said before, like there's some bigger Machiavellian chess game that's being played. And but you're right. Like it's, it's troubling because the reason why people think this is because they're so desperate. Right. So that they're looking, they're finding false saviors everywhere. And that is obviously a very destructive uh, place to be in is when you're so desperate that you'll put up with anyone and that you'll judge people based on very sort of superficial uh, metrics and that you'll imagine that they, because they maybe agree with you on one thing, that they must agree with you on everything, or even not even if they agree with you, just because they seem in some amorphous way like the kind of person that would maybe sympathize with you or like you or whatever else. And that's, I'd like, I wouldn't surprise me if, if Kevin O'Leary became boss of the Conservative Party. It wouldn't surprise me if Kevin O'Leary became Prime Minister of Canada someday. Not you know, and people will read all sorts of conclusions as to why that is. But I think that the one that the press has been the most hesitant to conclude is that there exists any sort of, uh, you know, disillusionment. I mean, the press has been in nonstop propaganda mode at a degree which I really think is, is quite galling and is going to look really bad in retrospect if, if there is some sort of populist conservative uprising in this country at some point. Because when you read the papers these days in this country, what do you see again and again? It's like things in Canada have never been better. We right. are doing so well compared to America, compared to the rest of the world. Canada is this shining you know, city on the hill. It's a beacon. You know, I saw this piece in, in McLean's magazine yesterday, which is a very sort of tendentious sort of thing that you see a lot, where it's like the, Canadian, or the American dream is alive and well in Canada. Like, everything's going great. And, you know, Justin Trudeau says the same thing, too. Like, we're just, we've got everything sorted out. And this is, this is a sort of very classically sort of Canadian attitude, where we are very smug people, and, and we are very uh, self-aggrandizing people, and, and that is a sort of flavor of populism itself, and it, it wins over some converts. But I do think that, you know, there's gonna be, the louder that this chorus gets, the more it just pisses off people who, you know, do not look around them do, and do not look at their lives and the lives of, of their friends and do not look at the state of the country and its economy and its culture and think, wow, this is, this is, this is a long way away from the utopia that uh, I'm always being told that I inhabit. Well, I've noticed the same thing in, in the press articles. There was a couple last week. The only time they actually mention the growing disillusionment in certain places is to say, uh, this is what they say, and here's why they're wrong. Uh, you know, yeah. this, is, this is their objections, and here's why they're stupid rednecks. And don't worry, there's only a few of them, and they're, they're nobody to pay attention to. Uh, that, that really irritates me, because 
here here in Ontario especially, like I've noticed my hydro bill go up uh, exponentially over the last couple of years. Now, I'm not the kind of person who pays attention to my bills very closely, and I'm in the, in the place of, of, of not having had to worry about that because for the longest time it was just me and my townhouse, right? But I can see for people with, with a couple of kids or you know a small business that's really dependent on other people's income, this, this is really real, and I think that for them, where the anger would come from is watching you know, Mr. Sunny Ways trot around the globe and brag about their country and how we're dodging all the bullets that are landing everywhere else. That, that could, I think, really stick in someone's throat after a couple of years of paying bills so high, they can't even afford to take you know, a week off in the summer and go somewhere, like the people that have been confronting Justin Trudeau at his town halls. Yeah, or I mean, you know, you can, and every province has its own dysfunction, right? I mean, you can look at, at where I live here in British Columbia, where the dream of home ownership, if you're a young person, is just basically like, that's just not going to happen. Like, you're just never going to be able to afford to uh, to own your own home, so you're just going to have to live in this, like, you know, renter's squalor forever. And like, you know, and, and you know, there's obviously Alberta has unique dysfunctions, you know, the uh, the carbon taxes over there and sort of this ideological war against uh, the the tar sands, which is this kind of like wicked thing now that, you know, as Prime Minister says, we have to like phase out because it makes it harder for us to, you know, be the toast of the next uh, Paris climate summit or whatever it is. Like these just very abstract ideological goals. The same thing with immigration, right, where you're seeing like communities that are becoming so diverse that you have like no sense of who your neighbors are anymore. You can't uh, you know, you can't just chat about things with the kind of people, you know, nobody's speaking English, you know, you're seeing a much more sort of stratified society where all of the lowest paid labor is being done by, you know, by imported foreigners who, you know, again, you know, don't speak your language, don't look like you are not culturally the same, like all of these kinds of things, like these, this is not a recipe for a healthy society as much as we're constantly being told it is. I mean, it's, 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 it's troubling stuff. And, and you have to believe that at some point, People are kind of going to get over the taboos associated with calling some of these problems out. And I think that that's actually what the left has been most successful at, is that they've been very successful at sort of learning how to pathologize criticism, that they've been very successful in learning how to brand criticism of their most extensive social engineering policies are now anybody that finds fault with them is either, you know, a racist, a homophobe, a climate change denier. Like these are very powerful labels that give people a lot of anxiety when that they're attached to. And uh, the problem, though, is that the only real way to push back against them is to be quite brash and to be quite unapologetic. And I think that that is a, you know, that's a disposition that doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. It doesn't, it certainly doesn't come naturally to me and perhaps not naturally to you, which is the kind of, uh, I suppose, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but that is kind of one of the great cleavages of our time is that, we live in, a, in an era where there is a great demand for populist leaders, and yet the people that are often would ordinarily be the leaders are people that are not sort of personality-wise equipped to necessarily offer that. They're people that want to be, you know, the, the traditional leader personality is more, more cerebral, more sort of standoffish, more, uh, you know, more, more, uh, more moderate of disposition, so to speak. And so the question is, well, who's going to fill that void then? Is it all just going to be, you know, a leadership of... Uh, Rash uh, reality show, people. That's a, an appropriate note to end the first round of this conversation on. <laughs> uh, I hope we can do this again really soon. And, and thanks a lot for taking so much time. Oh no worries, Jonathan. I'm glad we had this chat. <laughs>